0: As we have been in the text of John chapter 21, we have reviewed together that remarkable moment when the Lord Jesus Christ asked Simon Peter three times, do you love me? Peter's answers came with conviction and great grief, but he responded by saying, Lord, you know that I love you. And so Jesus three times commanded Peter, saying, feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep. He then indicated to Peter the manner in which he would die so as to glorify God. He said, when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. And when he had said these things, he said to Peter, follow me. Follow me. Again, Jesus was explaining to Peter the manner in which he would die so as to do what? glorify God and so what does Peter do he looks over at John and says well what about him what about that guy and so Jesus said to him if I want him to remain until I come what is that to you and he repeats the command you follow me Brethren, can I say this, and I know I've said this to many of you over the past few weeks, I am so thankful for the Lord's patience with me, because I look at this and I think to myself, what remarkable patience the Lord exercised with Peter, and I need that same patience. But the Lord dealt with Peter, he worked with Peter, he nurtured Peter, and he drew Peter away from the reality of his sin to this calling of loving Christ and serving Christ, restoring him and having a hand outstretched that was ready to receive him in that restoration process. This is beautiful. By the way, I have referred to John 21 in the past over the span of the years of my ministry. I preached through most of the book of the Gospel of John. I've never had the privilege, actually, of getting this far, though. So the last two Sundays have been the first time I've actually been able to go through John 21. I can't tell you what a remarkable privilege it has been personally just to study the text, contemplate it, and share a portion of it with you. But what we talked about last time, based upon the text of verses 18 through 22 in John 21, we talked about the fact that we have in these passages a remarkable reminder of the fact that we all as individuals must be committed to this matter of having singular devotion to Christ, a singular devotion that is rooted in love. And then we talked about the fact that we're to have this singular devotion to Christ that is also rooted in a trust in the Lord's character. And what is his character? What is his nature? Principally, we say and confess that he is good. And this is important because none of us know what tomorrow will bring. But what we do know is that we reside in the hands of our caring, loving, heavenly father. And so whatever comes tomorrow, we know this, we're in his hands and he loves us. By the way, that's all we need to know. I said to somebody recently, I think it's a grace of God that I don't have a crystal ball where I can see what's going to happen next week or a month from now. I think I would just tremble in fear or just curl up in a fetal position and just live in terror of What tomorrow will bring. I don't have to worry about those things. The only thing I need to think about is the fact that God holds me in his loving hands and he is good. And so the Lord restored Peter. And we talked about last time how it is that when the time of his death came... That he requested to be crucified in an upside-down position because he did not consider himself to be worthy. To be crucified in the same position as his Lord. Oh, how wonderfully was Peter restored. And how wonderfully was Peter used for the glory of God. And what a remarkable end to his life. You know, the world would look at this end him being crucified, and the world would complain and say, well, what a waste, what a waste. All these years of labor and servitude, where's his retirement home in this world? He's an elderly saint, he's seen enough affliction, all he had to do was just be a little bit more cooperative with the community around him, and they wouldn't have killed him. The world might be tempted to say, you know, there's not even a need to deny Christ. Just zip it and don't say anything. Just keep quiet. You'll preserve your life. And you'll enjoy your final days fishing and basking in the sunshine. Now, you know what? It doesn't matter what the world thinks or says. Peter finished his race well. And he joined the cloud of witnesses who now sing the praises of our Savior, and he will do so forever. Brethren, this is a triumph. And let us not think of this in any other way. But remember this the end of Peter's life was not the end of the church. Again, the end of Peter's life was not the end of the church. In Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus began asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, Petras, and upon this Petra I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. The gates of Hades or the gates of hell, this is a metonym for the devil and his angelic, fallen angelic cohort who fight night and day in order to destroy and take down the people of God, the work of God, the church of the living God. You probably know this, that this particular passage is pretty hotly debated, especially when it comes to the manner in which. The Roman Catholic Church uses and abuses this in justification for the papacy but I think that the exegesis is fairly simple enough Petros is a masculine the mas- masculine name for Peter but when Jesus says I I say to you Peter that I will build my church upon this petra Rock. It's The word rock normally appears in the feminine form, and so the shifting of the words is just an accommodation of going from masculine to feminine. The connotation of what we have here is simply this. And I agree with uh, William Hendrickson and other Reformed uh, exegetes who would say this. Hendrickson says this. He says, It's not to be built, the church is not being built on Cephas as he was by nature, but on him considered as a product of grace. By nature, this man Peter was, in a sense, a weakling and was very unstable. But by grace, he became a most courageous, enthusiastic, and effective witness of the truth which which the Father had revealed to him. It was in that sense, Hendrickson says, it was in that sense that Jesus used Peter... In building, gathering, and strengthening strengthening his church, in a secondary sense, it is entirely legitimate to speak of the apostles, including Peter, as the church's foundation, for these men were always pointing away from themselves to Jesus Christ as the one and only Savior. And so this is why the apostle Paul refers to the church as being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. What a remarkable thing it is to think about the fact that Peter failed so miserably, but he was restored so powerfully. And when Jesus said that once you were restored, he enjoins him in this way. He says, when you are restored, strengthen your brothers. And this he did. And this he did. brethren, I want us to consider the text that he supplies, that Peter supplies, whereby he strengthens the brethren. If you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7, I'm going to read through verses 7 through 19. This is a large section of scripture, and I'm going to admit to you in the outset, at the outset that we're going to summarize this pas- these passages Uh, We can't go through a detailed exegesis of them, but uh, for our ends, for our purposes, I want us to listen to the man who is restored by the grace of God as he strengthens us and encourages us in this matter of what it means to be the church of the living God. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Peter says this, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint, as each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so as by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler... But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name, let him glorify God. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Now, brethren, I read through that text beyond what we're going to cover this morning because I wanted you to consider the context of that section. But this morning, I want us to focus on verses 7 through 11 primarily. And I want us to consider what it is that Peter is teaching us regarding, first of all, our ministry as a church of vigilance and genuine love. We as a church have an important ministry of vigilance and genuine love. We need to think about that because this is very, very much emphasized in Peter's epistles and it is very much emphasized in the text that is before us. Secondly, as a church, we have a ministry of Of the manifold grace of God. A ministry of the manifold grace of God. Who are we but vessels of grace? Whoever we are as individuals, as fallen, weak creatures, that's really irrelevant. We're just cups, as the hymn writer says, cups to hold God's grace. But by the way, it's enough to be a a cup that holds God's grace. And that's exactly what we are. Stewards of the manifold grace of God. And thirdly and finally, we need to think about what Peter has to say to us about this matter of our needing to have endurance in a fallen world. The gates of hell are constantly throwing an assault against the church, and we are fools to be surprised by this. So Peter shuns this idea of our being surprised and helps us to understand that we need to endure faithfully as unto the Lord, Throughout our lives in this world. So, first of all, let's think together about what Peter's teaching us about our ministry of vigilance and genuine love. Notice what he says in verse 7 He said, The end of all things is at hand, therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. <laughs> I always kind of chuckle whenever I see that last statement, be hospitable with one another without complaint. I, I hope we don't invite people over and then complain about it when they're done. Say, you know what, you guys ate a lot of food, and you drank all my coffee, okay? You know, you're not invited back. You know, love is is gracious and generous. And so if we really have love in our heart, we, we're glad to have people in our homes. And so I, I want to say, and we're going to talk about this more later, but it's a it's a privilege to extend hospitality to others. And so we need to delight in that and engage in that. But notice what Peter says about this important matter of being vigilant. He says... The end of all things is at hand. and In other words, there is a, a climactic reality and manifestation of affliction. And contextually, in the writing of the epistles of Peter, we see and know and, and, and understand that the Neronian persecution was starting to build up and it was, would come to a climax in, in a matter of a few years. But in view of the... Distress and affliction that surrounded them, Peter says this be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Prayer, sobriety, sound judgment. Brethren, we need this. You know, this is really kind of the language that you see in the scriptures that reminds us of the fact that we're at war, this is a battle, and we're to be soldiers. We're to be watchmen, watching the gate. A soldier who's going to do his duty in watching the gate to protect the city does not fall asleep. But he must be watchful, he must be prayerful, As spiritually speaking, we must be watchful and prayerful in our duty as soldiers, the soldiers of Jesus Christ. And so emphasizes this concept in, in Peter's epistle that he says this, he begins his epistle with this idea of vigilance. He ends his epistle with this idea of sobriety and vigilance. He says at the beginning of his epistle, in chapter 1 and verse 13, he says, Therefore gird your minds for action, be, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. At the end of his epistle, he says this again, be sober of spirit. Be on the alert, your adversary the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Notice all this language and emphasis on vigilance, being sober-minded, being on the ready as a soldier. You know, this is the wisdom of experience. It's also the wisdom of failure. By the way, whenever we make a failure, whenever we do something wrong, we need to learn from our mistakes. One of the worst things we can ever do is make mistakes and then not learn from our mistakes. Imagine a universe where you never learn from your mistakes. You're just going to be guaranteed to keep doing the same thing, same thing, same thing every time. Whenever we make a mistake, mistake, whenever we fall, let us be students of the matter and learn how to stand up and walk away from the failures of our lives. I believe that Peter, understanding the importance of vigilance, calls us to this vigilance because he, when he fell in sin and denied Christ three times, he ceased being vigilant. If you'd like to, look with me at the text of Matthew chapter 26. It's remarkable the escalation of betrayal that happens when Peter denies the Lord three times Matthew chapter 26 beginning in verse 69 it says that Peter was sitting outside the courtyard and a certain servant girl came to him and said you too were with Jesus the Galilean but he denied it before them all saying i do not know what you're talking about that's remarkable i don't know what you're talking about it's a kind of a claim of ignorance But it escalates from there. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. With an oath. I do not know the man. And a little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, surely you too are one of them for the for the way you talk gives you away then he began to curse and swear i do not know the man and immediately a cock crowed he goes from a claim of ignorance to issuing an oath saying that he did not know jesus then he goes to cursing and swearing and denying jesus Brethren, this is the way of sin, especially when we sin and we fall and and we fail to learn from the sin. And then we try to cover the sin, and then we become more violent in terms of our rejection of the counsel of God, the wisdom of God, whereby we resist Him and His wisdom. Peter knows about the importance of being vigilant in his failure we see that he was not vigilant to guard his own heart and soul and instead of standing up and declaring the truth he gave in to the fear of man you know in the 17th century England there were a great number of pastors who were ejected from their pulpits from the ministry because they were preaching the gospel and they were not cowering to and submitting to the standards of the Church of England. And so a great number of them were just immediately removed from the pulpit and told not to preach anymore. John Flavel was one of those men. He knew something about the dangers of not being vigilant and the dangers of giving in to the fear of man. He says this, he says, it is far better to lose our carnal friends, estates, liberties, and lives than part with Christ's truth and a good conscience. By the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil, Proverbs sixteen six, but by the fear of men, they run themselves into evil, Proverbs 29, 5. Brethren, we have a great need to be vigilant because we have to remember that the gates of hell are constantly attacking the people of God. Satan and his demonic cohort are constantly going after the people of God and he is constantly trying to catch us in a moment where we're not being vigilant such that we might succumb to the fear of man capitulating the, to the standards of this world rather than to the standards of God. How many times have I talked to people and they kind of they'd say something like, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could just go back into the first century and then uh, we could have apostles and prophets who are walking the streets and, and attend a church where there's actually an apostle in the pulpit? I mean, that would be kind of interesting. And then they'll say something to the effect of, well, you know, it was so much easier back then. Have you read your Bible, I say? I mean, the conflicts that the church endured are remarkable. And even, not just on the outside, in terms of the world afflicting the church, but even from within, the church at Colossae was being captivated by worldly philosophy. At Galatia, they were giving in to the doctrine of the Judaizers. At Corinth, they were capitulating to the standards of paganism within the world. And the seven churches that are addressed in the book of Revelation in in Asia Minor time and again, time and again, time and again, they had all kinds of conflicts from without and from within. It's the same, th- it's the same thing in, in every generation. The gates of hell are constantly seeking to hurl abuses and attacks against the people of God, against the church of God. And we're fools to think that Satan is going to take a vacation. By the way, I have to confess to you, This is one of my weaknesses. I think the Lord is continuing to beat me into submission to understand Satan and his demonic cohort, they don't take vacation. As much as I would like for that to be true, it it is not true. And actually, that kind of thinking is a lack of vigilance. So I confess it to you. I'm just kind of dumb and slow with this regard, but uh, the Lord is teaching me. You see, we need to be vigilant, prayerful, sound in judgment. And we need to be fervent. Verse 8, 1 Peter 4, 8. We need to be fervent or keep fervent in our love for one another. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable, to one another without complaint. Brethren, this is so important. In order for the fires of Christian sanctification to burn b- brightly, we must preserve our love for Christ and our love for one another, and we must resist against and stand against the onslaught of the devil and his demonic cohort a- against this priority of love in defense of this priority of love. When he says, keep fervent in your love for one another, the word there for fervent is kind of interesting. It really speaks to the idea of having an outstretched hand, an outstretched hand. And the word keep is really a present active participle. It's ekontes. It's it's this idea of keeping your hand outreach to others such that you're extending to others love. I mean, it's kind of an interesting graphical idea, but that's the idea, is that you're a person who is constantly looking to extend the love of Christ to others. Keep fervent in your love for one another. And then he says, because love covers a multitude of sins. This is an important expression and it's important that we understand it because it's oftentimes an abused expression. Love covers a multitude of sins. The idea here is, again, readiness to forgive. Even an eagerness to forgive. The manner in which this expression is abused oftentimes is that sometimes people will speak of this idea of Love covering a multitude of sins, it's almost as if they're saying that, well, you know, love, it's really like whitewashing sin or ignoring actual sin. This is not what this expression is talking about. In fact, if you want to have a better delineation and understanding of what this expression means and how it was used amongst the New Testament writers, go on over to James chapter 5 and verse 20 where James says, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Covering a multitude of sins is not whitewashing sin. It's a readiness to, to reach out to others and draw them away from sin and restore them and forgive them. That's what it is. That's what James is talking about. He who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You know, Jesus restoring Peter is the greatest example of what we're talking about. Jesus did not whitewash Peter's sin, he didn't say to Peter, you know, let's just let bygones be bygones. Three times when he asked him, three times, we understand what Jesus was doing by asking him three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, with anguish in his heart and soul, knowing that he failed the Lord three times, responded, Lord, you know I love you. In that interaction, there was an acknowledgement of his failure, but in that interaction, there was a readiness to restore him and forgive him and receive him. You know, back in 2014, thinking about this kind of erroneous notion of love covering a multitude of sins as being a whitewashing of sin, a lot of this kind of came into force and play back about uh, I'd say about nine ten years ago. Um, there were a number of books that were coming out that were trying to justify the idea of accepting and receiving homosexuality into the church. And so I don't know if you remember, but in 2014. An individual by the name of Matthew Vines had written a book called God and the Gay Christian, where Vines indicates that he claimed to have a high view of scripture, but in his book he said, with this supposed high view of scripture, he said, this book, my book, envisions a future in which all Christians come to embrace and affirm their LGBTQ brothers and sisters without undermining their commitment to the authority of the Bible. And then he indicates that through his book, he believed that the fiercest objections to the LGBTQ equality, those that are based upon religious beliefs, will begin to just fall away. He wanted his book to be an instrument whereby th- this idea of identifying homosexuality as a sin, that that would just kind of fall away. Whitewashing sin. Sin. You know what, brethren, I've said this. I, I know I've said this before. I don't know if I've said this here, but um, whitewashing sin is not love. If you see someone who is walking towards a precipice and they're about to fall off a cliff, sitting there and going, well, that's just that's the, the way they are. That's them. That's their choice or whatever. That's unloving. In fact, it's hateful. You know what love does? Love reaches out and grabs that individual. Love has the arm that is outstretched, with, 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 with a, a heart of love that seeks restoration and, and forgiveness. That's what love looks like. Again, during this time when a lot of these books were coming out with appeals to accept and embrace homosexuality, there were all these appeals of love. We need to be loving people. Well, I'd agree we need to be loving people, but what does love look like? In fact, at the time, I remember researching, and, and since then I've done a little bit of research, there were, there were a great number of pastors who have changed their views and convictions such that they now embrace homosexuality. Why? Because a family member is now homosexual, and, well, love means that I have to accept them. Or a son or a daughter now is a homosexual. There were a number of Reformed pastors who, who did this. They said, well, my son is now homosexual. I need to love them. And just airbrush and whitewash their sin. That's not love. You know, Paul also wrote on the subject of love. He says, We're to be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Does it sound familiar? It's kind of a parallel to what Peter is saying, but you know what is the premise to all that? It is, hey, agape. The love, he says, using the definite article. I don't have time to get into this. It's a beautiful text. It's an amazing statement. He says, the love, unhypocritical. Or my translation has, let love be without hypocrisy. And then he says, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. You know what unhypocritical looks like? It looks like abhorring evil and clinging to what is good. But true love does not accept evil, embrace it, and celebrate it. Many in the modern church have forsaken this simple truth. And so we've heard appeals since then regarding how love wins. And the one I really like is love is love. Can somebody explain to me what it means to say love is love? I have no idea. You know what love is? It is without hypocrisy. You know what love looks like? It abhors what is evil and clings to what is good. And it is this extended hand whereby we eagerly seek to restore the sinner and bring them back and forgive them, just as Jesus did with Peter. So we have a ministry of vigilant love. We also are called as the church of God to have a ministry of the manifold grace of God. He says, as each one has received a special gift, verse 10, 1 Peter 4 and verse 10, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, Let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We're stewards of the manifold grace of God. The word steward is pretty simple but this is a very important term. It's a construct of two Greek words, oikos and nomos, house and law, or house and management. Uh, The idea of a steward is someone who is a manager of a household, somebody who has a a provision of a house, a provision in, in which he lives and abides, and he takes care of it. He manages it. He does what is necessary to upkeep it. And we're stewards of what? Peter says we're stewards of the manifold grace of God. There the word poikiles means diversity. You know, the world ruins good and simple words. Now, now we're being uh, hit with the notion of diversity day in and day out. And now it's uh, DEI, diversity, uh, uh, what is it? Diversity, uh, equity, I'm sorry, And inclusion. With all the times I hear this, I should just know that off off the top of my head. But this is the world that we live in. But mark, mark this, brethren. Don't let the world destroy biblical language. We must not let it do that. Like words like love. Here, the idea is diversity. That, in other words, the grace of God manifests itself in the people of God in diverse ways. We all have the grace of God. Here's the concept. Again, we're all cups to hold God's grace, but this manifests itself in different ways in terms of our lives and ministries. But it's all important ministry. Whatever God has called us to do, we need to understand it's a stewardship, and we need to be good stewards of what God supplies. And we need to remember the instruction that the apostle Paul gives where he says that it is one and the same spirit who works all these things all these gifts distributing to each one individually just as he wills. So my life in ministry as a as a cup to hold God's grace is not up to me to decide how I do this as a preacher I don't get to get up here and say well you know I think being a pastor means this and I think I'm going to preach from whatever book I want to and Next week, we're going to go through the apocryphal book of Enoch. I don't think so. I have a mandate and duty as to how to do this work, as a steward of grace. You have a mandate to do the work of God according to his will, not your own. It's true for all of us. And as a church, we have to keep this in mind because if we lose sight of this idea of the fact that we serve his will rather than our own, then er- everything is lost. By the way, this is one of the reasons why I, I wrote and dealt, have dealt with the subject of fallible prophecy over the years. Um, imagine if you had if you were in a church where they accepted this extra-biblical idea of being a fallible prophet. That, that is an oxymoron, by the way. If someone is a genuine prophet, fallibility is not in the actual equation. But men have decided to create this new office, this new so-called gift, such that the person who is a so-called prophet, when they speak to you, they have a blending of truth and error, and it's on you. It's your, it's, it, the burden is on you to figure out what is true and what is erroneous. Don't move to London, because if you do, tra- tragedy will happen in your life. Prophet will say, the fallible prophet will say to you. And then you'll have to sit there and figure out do I obey this? Is this true? Is it filled with error? And what part is erroneous? What part is true? Can you imagine what this does to the people of God? You know, the beautiful thing is is that we have God's prophetic revelation and it is not fraught and filled with error. But as soon as we lose sight of the fact that the Spirit of God distributes the gifts to His church, individually just as he wills then everything everything is fixed everything is set aright and we don't get to make up spiritual gifts that don't exist in scripture by the way stuff like that is a dangerous distraction that's why i've taken it to task in the book that uh, the ladies are going through uh, earl blackburn's book jesus loves the church and so should you, he simplifies it just like Peter does. He helps us to understand that, that the church is to be dedicated to the idea of instruction and edification of the believer and to evangelism. And that all of this is our worship, our spiritual services of worship, as, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12. It's simple, but how easy it is for us to corrupt this simple principle. The gifts that have been given by the Spirit have been given according to His will, and what has been given, we're called to be stewards of these things. And so Peter speaks in two general categories of the gifts of God's grace. He says, "Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God." The Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy in First Timothy chapter three, talks about the calling of elders who are called to the task of teaching and preaching. He says, Peter goes on, he says, whoever serves, let him do so as uh, by the strength which God supplies. Again, thinking about the manifold grace of God and the manifestation of the gifts of God, Paul talks about the giving of the deacons, the diaconate, to the church, and all other gifts of giving, of mercy, of helps, and administration that he talks about in 1 Corinthians 12. Again, these are the distributed gifts given by the Spirit according to his will, and all, all of them and everyone is to take these gifts, these provisions of grace, and use them ultimately for the glory of God. This is exactly what he says then in verse 11. Using a hina clause, he says, So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. When I was a young believer, Sandra and I, we had a Bible study in our home for teenagers that, high school students, and uh, one of the kids who was there, their parent was apparently a Miles Stanford devotee. Miles Stanford, um, I'm not going to explain it right now, but uh, Google it, Google his name. He's somewhat of a hyper-dispensationalist. Stanford had a kind of a strange idea and thought that The only books of the Bible that were really worth reading were the epistles of Paul. So forego everything else was kind of the motif of that teaching. So the father, and I didn't know about this, so when I was talking to the father, he said to me, he said, well, you know, I'd mentioned something about the uh, epistles of Peter. And he says, well, you know, Peter didn't know anything about the church. Have you ever had the experience where somebody says something like that to you and you sit there and you go, I have have no idea what to say. Well, 32 years later, it's taken me this long of a time, but I, I think what I might say if somebody said that again is this, Sir, have you explained your view to the Holy Spirit who spoke through Peter as an instrument? It's not about Peter. It's not about Paul. The Spirit of God gives the gifts according to his will and he spoke through these instruments to reveal his word. It's not complicated. Oh, how, we, how easily we complicate that which is not complicated. But we're to, be, we're to be stewards of the grace of God that is given to us. It is a manifold grace. It is a multifaceted grace. It looks differently in the lives of each and every believer, but we come together as the, as the household of God, as the people of God, as the body of Christ, and we co-labor to this one common goal of giving glory to God to get together. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter then reminds us of our need to endure in this fallen world. In verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Again, why? When did the gates of hell take a vacation? When does the devil ever take a break? Never. So don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing. I love this. What a great lesson Peter has learned. Why are these trials happening? You may not like them and they may not feel good, but mark this they are for your testing, for your refinement. These things come to you for your testing. Don't treat them like as if it's some sort of a strange ordeal. He says, as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer, Or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed. But in that name, let him glorify God. For it is time for for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, he says... Let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Here's our one responsibility. Entrusting our souls to a faithful creator. It doesn't matter what happens to us in this life. It doesn't matter what the gates of hell do to us individually or even corporately as a church. We have one responsibility, and that is to do what is right in trusting our souls to the Lord. That's it. This is a one-point-to-do list. We do what is right for the glory of God. so when the apostles Peter and the apostles were arrested for preaching the gospel in Acts chapter 5 they were brought before the council of the Sanhedrin and the high priest questioned them saying we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in his name and behold you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you have put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand. And as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. They were flogged and ordered not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they were released. And I love this. They did not despair or quit. They did not conclude that this is too hard, it's not worth the hassle. Verse 41 tells us that they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They suck with their one-point-to-do list, doing what is right, entrusting their souls to the Creator, and doing everything for the glory of God. Brethren, I I have more, but I'm over time, and we have a time of fellowship together. I'll save some of this for next Lord's Day. But let me ask you to turn in your your Bibles to one final text to contemplate before we end our time together. Let me ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. The book of Hebrews, we must remember this. The author of Hebrews was writing to an afflicted and persecuted people. Meaning, just going to church was dangerous. Going to church for them meant the possibility of immediate persecution the loss of their possessions, which he addresses, jail, and in some cases, death. And so verse 24, thankfully, does not say, stop meeting. It's too dangerous. Instead, it says, let us consider how to simulate one another to love and good deeds, That word simulate means, literally comes from a word that speaks of a a, a prod, a cattle prod. Now, brethren, don't build a cattle prod and start poking each other, right? We're not going to be literalists here, but what's the idea? This idea of lovingly giving a gentle nudge to one another. To do what? To simulate one another to love and good deeds. And then he says... Not forsaking your own assembling together. Why would they be tempted not to assemble? Because it was dangerous. As is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In a sense, he's saying, don't give up, press on even harder. Do what is right entrusting your soul to a faithful creator doing it all for the glory of God and spend your weeks I love—I I don't have time to preach this text this is one of the problems with going through a text like this at the end of a sermon it's like I want to preach this now but I'm going to give you a little thought here that word consider that word speaks of the idea of constant mental evaluation and consideration spend all week thinking about how you can assemble together and lovingly cattle prod each other to love and good deeds. Don't come here sitting there going, I wonder what I'm going to get out of this service. Come here as operators who are ready to talk to other people and say, how are you doing? How can I pray for you? How can I encourage you and simulate you to love and good deeds? If you come here with an attitude to say, well, I, I hope this is a good sermon. By the way, I come here every Sunday thinking, I hope this is a good sermon. I get that. But but if you're going to be passive about it, you're not going to get anything out of it, out of the time together that we have. But if you come with an active sense of, I'm here with an agenda, with a, an arm of love extended to others, with a desire to stimulate others to love and good deeds, you're going to have a completely different experience if you're not doing that already. And I I think I can say that pretty much everybody's doing that, but to the extent that we're considering this, all of us can still excel still more, to quote the Apostle Paul. We can always do better, right? So we're about to have a fellowship time after the service. So we can uh, simulate one another to love and good deeds then and there. But as we close our time, I'd like to ask you to turn to hymn number 124. Hymn number 124. By the way, it's not illegal to sing a Christmas hymn when it's not Christmas, right? I'm just checking. I'm in California now, so I'm still getting to know the laws yeah, we're not, we're not governed by that. Exactly. Thank you. Let's stand together. But let me have you turn. look at this hymn, number 124. Think about how it is that the Old Testament saints were longing for the first advent of Christ. A brethren worse to have that same longing for Christ in his second advent. He's coming again. So think with me about verse 2. Born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Brethren, let's sing this to the glory of our Lord. Let's sing it together. Thank you for the precious and wonderful riches of Christ. We thank you for the riches of your word. We thank you for the privilege that we had to feast on the scriptures this morning. Oh, may they not go to our minds without seeping into our hearts, without impacting our lives, such that we would be a people who are ready to extend a hand, an arm of love, to turn the sinner from his way, to restore and forgive and to stand ready to be vigilant in all respects of our lives as stewards of the manifold grace of God. What a privilege it is to be a child of God. What a privilege it is to be the church of the living God. Lord, grow us in this way such that we together would live for your glory as your people. Bless us in our time now and in our time of fellowship downstairs. We give you all praise and thanks for all your provisions and we do so in the fair and precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ.